Hello and welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I am your host, Bernadette Pager. Javier can't be with us today, but hopefully he'll be back in the house next week. Oh, we're also streaming live to CHD TV, of course, streaming to Facebook. And I'm hearing we're going to have more options moving forward. So we might be showing up on some other platforms, which is really very exciting because we have got to be the news. We've got to be the news to make this health revolution, this freedom revolution happen, happen peacefully. It happens with communication, with information, with overcoming, and hopefully, not hopefully, we will eradicating, eradicate the censorship that has been growing um, exponentially. Um, my first guest, oh, let me just start saying the views expressed um, today on this show are not necessarily those of our wonderful KKNW um, or uh, Children's Health Defense. Um, so just keep that in mind, you know, and I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I just like to pretend I'm one on the radio. No, just kidding. So anyway. Uh, my first guest, I'm so glad to have her on today. Her name is Andrea Gomez, and she's from Citizens for Renewing America. Welcome to an Inform Life Radio, Andrea. Hi, thank you. Am I pronoun- oh, thank you. Yeah, am I pronouncing your name correctly, Andrea? I answer to all variations. And- Andrea is, is typically Andrea. pronounced, yeah. Okay, on the first. I know I've interviewed before, but and I appreciate you repeating how to say that. You know, sometimes I wonder what parents are thinking when they give people a certain spelling of their name where it's where there's variations of how to pronounce it. It makes it your whole life you're having to explain people how to pronounce your name. Yeah. Yeah. Um so well, don't let me forget. I want you to first introduce Citizens for Renewing America, but I'm just so excited because when I first met you in Johnson City, like you were remembering maybe last December, yeah, I think um, so. you were talking about maybe we could get these church style, not maybe, you were working toward getting these, what's called a church style investigational committee going on some of the fraud going, the FBI fraud. And it sounded like a miracle that we could ever get that. And by gum, it's going on. Right. I mean, it's it's happening. Whoa. Okay, so that's just a little heads up, people, because this entire two hours is about people taking action and doing what people say is impossible. They're getting it done. And that's what Andrea is, or Andrea is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, I'm going to go ahead and, and switch over while you begin talking. I'm going to try to see if I can sh- um, share and show the, the website for Citizens for Renewing America. And you tell us a little bit about you guys. Okay, so just a quick update too. Um, I'll give you that on based off of what's happened um, with our DC fights since we spoke last. Um, So when I saw you last, I was definitely talking about the church style committee. Um, So our organization, Center for Renewing America and Citizens for Renewing America, they're um, they're two in one. Citizens is the okay. activist arm um, okay. for Center for Renewing America. So I'm here in Tennessee 
Um, my job is to work at, with the grassroots across the state and support them and elevate them um, in whatever their America first um, priorities are. Um, and then to also be a conduit of what we're doing um, up in DC at the national level. Okay. So um, one of those fights that, um, that we took on with Center for Renewing America, um, led and founded by Russ Vogt. He was Trump's OMB director, that's Office of Management and Budget. So he's a budget mm. guy, he's a strategy guy. He's been around, he's, um, he's, he's brilliant. Um, and he was working on um, a couple of things. The first thing was um, calling for that church style committee to go after the woke and we weaponized bureaucracies in our federal government. So we're seeing Americans being targeted for their views, for not going along with the narrative, um, being targeted by Department of Education, FBI, IRS, and so forth. And so he was calling for that church cell committee to investigate these um, federal agencies for these abuses. It was called church cell because it's a throwback to the 1970s. Senator Frank Church headed up a Senate, a Senate committee. And so it was called the church cell committee. Um, so that was a big fight that was picked last fall. When the election happened and we did not get a red wave or a red tsunami, um, Russ saw an opportunity to, um, to pick another battle. And that was to oppose Kevin, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. And, and the, the, the rationale behind that was, you know, if we'd had that red tsunami, that red wave, then those um, House Freedom Caucus members of the Republican Party would not have had much of an influence they were, their votes would not have been um, needed as much as they are now with a slim majority. So that slim majority, while we were disappointed, also provided an opportunity for those House Freedom Caucus members to have a seat at the table and to negotiate. So um, he, he worked behind the scenes with the members to oppose Kevin McCarthy. Um, and really the, the ultimate goal was what the the rules changes needed to be um, and and whichever speaker was going to, uh, you know, uh, agree to those rules changes. Um, so that was an interesting battle that took place in January. And mm -hmm. um, as we know, we had the 20 that stood up, the 20 um, House members that stood up. And one of those being our very new freshman um, Congressman from the 5th District here in Tennessee, um, Congressman Andy Ogles, he was mm -hmm. one of the 20 that stood up. They were bold, they held their ground, and they got exactly what they wanted. We did get Kevin McCarthy, but we got Kevin McCarthy with all of the concessions that we needed to have for the American people. So now that those two fights have been, and we got our church style committee, by the way, so mm -hmm. we do have that committee. We have it headed up by Jim Jordan and um, and it, uh, uh, what are they calling? I can't remember what they're calling it. It's not an oversight committee. It's something else. Um, but it it's they're 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 doing what they need to do. They still need to continue hiring and um, and investigating. But they they're up and running. Um, and then and the next battle picked by Center for Ending America up in D.C. is this. Um, woke and weaponized budget. And I'm saying the word woke a lot. So I do want to take a moment to define that. 
Um, so the, the left has their definition where it's kind of like if you're woke, you are awakened to the systemic um, racism in our culture and that America is, is deeply flawed um, and racist at every level. But they, so that's what they will, um, that's what they will try to tell you woke means. But what we are telling people, the way we're defining woke is that it's an ideology that, be, that uh, believes that American society is fundamentally oppressive on the basis of race and identity. And it's an effort to divide Americans um, on race and gender and sexual preference in order to achieve equity and outcomes. Um, by discriminating in favor of those perceived oppressed groups. What woke really is, is old school racism dressed up in lipstick. It hasn't really changed. It's just got some new, um, some new terminology around it. So this big fight in D.C. is going after the woke and weaponized spending um, they're using our tax dollars against us in so many ways. And so Russ and the team up there are working with members of Congress to understand what woke means, mm -hmm. how it's being weaponized against us. And then we're doing that down here at the state level as well. So you're going to start to see more and more conversation around the budget. Mm -hmm. um, they have proposed a budget. Um, that Congress is looking at and and um, will be using this as a, um, a framework moving forward. Um, and then we're going to hear more and more conversation about that debt ceiling limit. Um, and what we're saying in the in our organization is that um, we need to see this woke and weaponized um, spending, these um, discretionary budgets. We need to see the cuts made in order to increase that debt ceiling. Mm, okay, wow, that is a whole lot that you have got going on there. Um, and I'm so glad that you're following it. You know, we all have a certain bandwidth and I don't have enough bandwidth to really spend time following this. So I'm so glad to know people like you. Um, so you can come explain, keep us up to date what's going on and let us know when we need to add our voices add our support to the actions that you are doing because there's a lot of fires to put out, right? And a lot of change needed. Um, I, I kind of want to say the thing about the, the whole woke thing that's going on, it completely, um, it's the opposite of how I was raised. I was, you know, I was a kid of the 60s, growing up in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, that kind of hippie time, although I was a nerdly little girl going to St. Bernadette's grade school and all that. But, you know, the the whole idea was you don't see color. You don't judge on color, gender, you know, different things. You just judge people by like the maybe the color of their soul, I guess, and their actions, you know, their ethics, um, what they're capable of doing. You know, you love your neighbor, love your brother. And one of the things I was really raised to understand is that you cannot lift others up by pushing others down. That's not how you lift up. And right now what I'm seeing is that, you know, for so many Americans, if you consider yourself con conservative, um, or, or Christian or, um, you know, or even that you're, you're white color, like I'm a mixture, a hodgepodge, you know, they make you always choose something, you know, these days, but 
you know, color, what's color, but anyway, but if you're any of those things, then somehow you have to step back and be lesser than that's not what makes humanity or a free republic or a nation that embraces diversity work. We have to celebrate everybody and accept everybody, right? But only to the point where I guess what I'm saying is like it, it, it's gone to such absurd levels that you have people absolutely not qualified to do certain things who are being put in certain positions simply because they represent one of those woke, you know, categories. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's the enforcement of this woke ideology that we're going to use these DEI principles to hire and fire um, mm -hmm. to determine who gets into a school and who gets the promotion and so forth. And it's, it's a, it's an effort to divide and control, you know, I mean, uh, that the whole idea of woke is I'm going to call everything racist until I have complete control over it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the music of five times August because he, his music, the lyrics just kind of explain exactly things like that. Um, Andrea, we lost your video feed. I don't know if that's on your end or our end, but um, we seem to have lost yeah. you. If you could look at, see if your camera is able to work. So <clears throat> in the meantime, everybody's just looking at me, talking to myself. So I'm glad we could still hear you. Um, so the, what was, I should have jotted it down. My other question. Oh, there you are. Yay. Um, the, the, these committees are very exciting that are going on in Congress, all these various interrogation. Some of them, I wish they would actually answer the question and then be quiet long enough to let the person they're interviewing complete their sentence because they're perjuring themselves. And it would be nice if they would just complete the process. <laughs> they're so eager to have this moment of being able to grill these people that they've been trying to get at for years. I know that I can understand their eagerness, but I've also heard, you know, out in a buzz in the in the country from the citizens is, yeah, it's all lovely to hear all this talk, but where's the action? Where's it going? Where are these talks going? So do you know that next steps, these congressional hearings, um, at some point, is it going to lead to an actual um, court criminal investigation proceedings where somebody is actually held accountable for what they did, like the FBI um, censoring American free speech? I mean, excellent question. I am right there with you. I want to see consequences for illegal activity. Um, there's, there's, I have a list of people that I would like to see be indicted um, or at least impeached or in the very least re that they would have to resign. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I'm going to be positive and say, yes, we're going to move in that direction. But it, I think do take time. Okay. So the first step is getting that dialogue recorded and on the official record, right. I, I suppose. So here's the evidence. What do you have to say? And there's an awful lot of, I don't know, I'll have to check into that, right? That's very convenient excuse, or I don't recall, or not to the best of my re recollection, you know, um, so I do hope it leads somewhere and, and maybe your organization, your, the Center for Renewing America or Citizens will be able to help compel if it doesn't naturally evolve that next step, because people are wanting to see real change and, and 
perpetrators held accountable. You know, our lives have been so completely upended. The policies pushed down, the silencing, the censoring, the division of friends and family from all of the people who should not, who, who loved each other as friends and family prior to all of this. It wasn't just mask or no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. Like you said, it's the whole woke agenda. And, and do you support this and that? Um, marriages have failed. Friendships have been broken. Um, lives have literally been lost by people feeling, you know, betrayed and abandoned, you know, um, on both sides of, of the issues. And our lives have been completely turned upside down by this attempt to have the division and the confusion. And it's all a distraction, you know, because um, at the end of the day, anybody that they have elevated at the expense of pushing others down they're only going to stay elevated to a certain degree for so long because the powers that be doing this, they want the power. They're not going to just hand it over, you know, to those that they say that they're rising, you know, so we need to join forces. We need to clasp hands with everybody. So not let them get away with this. And, and that's what I'm struggling with a little bit as an activist at the citizen level. It's really easy to engage with people who we say have um, that are awake, not woke. And how we find all that common ground of, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I, I follow this. And, and we've got sort of the same values and everything. But how do we engage with people that are not where we are in a helpful way? That's the hard part, right? Mm -hmm. um, making those connections and, and trying to come back together to look at the real common en enemy um, that's trying to take away our freedom. So one of the things, um, yes, you do have to become educated because you, you can't fix what you don't know. So, and for, for every issue and for every person, there's a learning curve. Um, you know, it, it, that's why I, I encourage a, a, an activist at the grassroots level, a citizen that wants to get involved. And I think most people truly do want to get involved. They want to be impactful. They want to make a difference. Their heart is in the right place. Um, it, like you said earlier, there's fires everywhere you turn, right? Um, when I'm at Cordell Hall and I think I'm focused and I'm, I've got my bills, I'm watching, and all of a sudden I hear about another one. I'm like, I didn't know about that one. I know. So there's always something going on, and so there's there's a little bit of chaos and confusion, and I think that's kind of part of de by design. But I I encourage people to pick a lane. Pick a lane that you're passionate enough in that you can learn it and then learn how to speak about it. And if you think of it as um, like learning a new language, um, let's just take election integrity, for example. OK, mm -hmm. we all understand what it means to vote, why it's important and so forth. But there's a lot of inner workings and in election integrity that get very technical um, and there's there's so many parts to it. Um, it is like learning a new language. And so when you've got brand new people, um, they have to have some time where they're learning, they're absorbing, and they're kind of steeped in the um, in, in listening to others. So you, you have to read, you have to listen before you can really go out and talk about it. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck, not just with yeah. election integrity, but with any issue is they get stuck. They, they, they've 
heard mm-hmm. and they, they know, but they haven't gotten to the point where they can then produce that language and have um, good conversations about it. And that's ultimately how you're going to be impactful is when you can have um, a conversation with other people in your circle of influence or conversations with your legislature, your legislators, mm-hmm. and you that influence. So we have to be right. We've got to know our material. We got to know the information and we also have to be polite. So bring that righteous anger and frustration, but it has to be done in a respectful manner so that you don't lose all of your credibility when you're speaking to someone. Um, but it's, there's a, there's a learning curve and it's, you know, you're absorbing it. You're like, I understand it. Think of a baby. Um, or a toddler, they understand when you're speaking to them, but that doesn't mean they can always produce the language, right? Right, right. And, you know, hand in hand with, I'm so glad you brought this up because also in Cordell Hall this past week, I was having a a discussion with a legislator and the fact that there are some people who are stepping in, they're eager, they're excited, they want to participate, and they've learned a certain amount about a subject, Mm -hmm. but they don't know enough to really be able to bring um, enough insights into how they're approaching the subject. And so sometimes they're making things worse because they don't understand it enough. And it always makes me think, and I just was searching for this. There's a a quote from uh, 1709, I believe. It's Alexander Pope, an essay on criticism. So he says, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. Their shallow drafts intoxicate the brain and drinking largely sobers us again. And so by, you know, if you take a shallow drink of a subject, you learn just enough to get out there and get angry and start shouting. And if you do that, when you say going to the legislature and talking to your legislators, you're like, you, you, you shot down this bill. That was a good bill. How dare you? But they don't know enough about maybe the bill contents, the bill process, um, to understand that there was some bad language in that bill that had it passed, it would have, it would have been a really bad thing for what they were trying to fix. Or, you know, there's, there's things like that, that you don't know. Um, So really knowing enough before you speak up, otherwise you can really cause, and I think that we've got a whole lot of new activists who don't know subjects deeply enough to work. And I, I encourage the new people, right? We need you, but try to find people who've been in this, in that particular subject for a few years, who you can confer with, who can give you the inside scoop of, of what's going on. You know, in one of the legislators offices at the, um, in Nashville at the Capitol there, I think it's um, representative Zachary, there's a huge sign on his wall and it says something like, and it's, I think it's from a former president it says something like, it's better to kill a bad bill than to pass good bills. Something like that. It's like, because, you know, making laws is is really a serious thing. And it's better to have fewer laws and have them be really good than it is to populate it with a lot of bad bills or bills that got, you know, 
anyway, I'm sort of digressing, but well, no, I, I agree with that. And and whenever I come across a bill, if I don't understand it or I feel I don't feel confident in my understanding mm -hmm. of it, then I'm not going to support it if mm -hmm. I don't understand it. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go out and bash it if I don't understand it. But I I've I've acquired a few people in my circle that I know I can text and say, can I talk to you about this bill? I need yeah. to know where you stand on this. And I think that's so important. Yes. Having a circle of people that you trust that you can reach out to and say, I, I want your thoughts on this and then just listen. And it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you have to agree with everything or you have to absorb their opinions, but it's always good to get multiple perspectives. Yeah. And as, um, as a former educator, a former teacher, I mm -hmm. offer that to, um, to the people that I know that are walking the halls of Cordell Hall. I'm here for that educator um, perspective. I wouldn't call it expertise, but I would call it a perspective, right? Yes, yes. From my experience and my background. And the other thing is, is I think building coalitions, are it's really important. We saw with those 20 um, members of Congress that that was a coalition of, of people with that are like-minded working together. But here at the state level, we can do this. Um, we have a coalition I started last fall, um, which when I say I started, all I really did was go and look for the most talented, um, passionate people in election integrity and put them all on one Zoom call so we can communicate and collaborate. And now I'm doing that for education as well. So oh, I have great. two separate coalitions and, and your viewers that are in Tennessee are welcome to be a part of this. But even if you're not in Tennessee, this is something you can do in your own state is um, just provide a platform through a Zoom call or some sort of um, some sort of way to get people together with, that are like-minded and with a focus. So election integrity is one and education is another. Um, and so we're looking at, uh, we just started the education one, we're looking at what we can do to impact school board races across the state mm -hmm. and also how we can influence legislation for next session. Mm -hmm. um, and the goal is to build a task force in every county, just like with the Election Integrity Coalition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, small task forces working together locally and then coming together on a larger platform to communicate and collaborate across the state. These are this is powerful. And it also gives you an opportunity to hear those other perspectives and learn from others across the state that know mm -hmm. more about a subject than you. Mm -hmm. Another way to get steeped in your whatever lane you're choosing, whatever subject you're choosing so that we can all grow. I love that. That is excellent advice. And I also wanted, uh, want people new to this who are would like to move in this direction to know that unfortunately, many legislators really don't understand the, the bills they're sponsoring. It's a sad thing. There's some really good ones who legislators who take the time to read it deeply, to think critically like, you know, this looks good, but how could it go wrong if this passes? How could it be abused in a way I don't expect? You know, um, that's so important to do. But there are a scary number of bills out there and the bill sponsors or the co-sponsors really don't know what it what's in it. What's in I don't know. My name's on it. What What's the bill about? Right. And it's really amazing how citizens are so important. Go in, find the legislation on your um, state website, on the legislature uh, website, read it critically, talk with others about it, and then get appointments with your legislators and go tell them 
what you love about it and what you're concerned about it. Um, you probably just like me have found things in there. And um, I remember last session, there were two bills that were caption bills. Um, and when the final language was put forward, it was read so quickly, they had no time to think. And the legislators in both the House and Senate passed it. I was sitting at home watching on, you know, the state TV and I about fell off my chair when I heard what they passed because I knew what it meant, right? It wasn't how the, it was being presented, but I knew what the words could do and what it really meant. So, um, you know, we started a campaign and the next day I show up in the offices and I got it. I remember one in particular, I sat down with this Senator and I said, you voted for this bill yesterday. He says, yes, I did. And I said, I showed it to him and he read it. He says, yeah. And I said, let me tell you what this does. And then I, I explained to him and he got it instantly. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm like, yeah, that's what you guys. He said, well, the guy next to me voted for it. So I figured it was OK. That's no way to pass a bill. You know what? Are you kidding me? Um, that's like a, a teenager explanation. Yeah, they go so fast, especially as, as session goes on. It's like watching auctioneers, you know, and um, it just so bringing, believe it or not, legislators, many of them do appreciate it. If you come to them, you're articulate, you've studied it, you've found some voices and you bring your concerns. You can ask for amendment. You can they, sometimes you can get them to change their support of a bill. They might even pull their name off a bill if they can't amendment. They realize it's doing something um, that they they don't no longer stand behind because they hear how it could go wrong. So our voices are important. And everybody needs to know if citizens are not walking the hall, getting appointments, scheduling for public comment, <clears throat> all of that thing, all of that stuff, the only people explaining the bills to the legislators are That's the right. lobbyists. That's right. Right. Exactly. And I tell you what, I don't know what if it's like this in all states, but in in Nashville, the way to a legislator's heart must be through his stomach because they are being fed morning, noon and night from some sort of lobbyist committee up on that eighth floor. There's always there's always the and it's ice not cream. healthy food, right? Yeah. It's ice cream. It's fry this and catered. I'm not going to mention any brand names, but it's a lot of it's the same brand name. <laughs> they bring in and, um, you know, uh, so, and then after, after hours, if you go look it up because it has to be reported, some of these lobbyists, um, they'll have a $45,000 after, um, office hours party. Because it's at a hotel, they have to rent the venue, they pay for the alcohol, they pay for the food. That gets very spendy, right? They're being wined yeah. and dined. And the citizen activist, the citizen lobbyist doesn't have a, no. an expense account to do that. And I, I'm not technically a lobbyist. I'm there to support Me the either. activists that are going mm -hmm. up there. But mm -hmm. I did have to go through the lobbyist training and I did have to register and I cannot do, um, you know, you can't as a lobbyist, you can't do gifts or anything like that. Um, I can't even buy a cup of coffee for someone. But if I bought a cup of coffee for every. <laughs> you can buy them for everyone. I would, yeah. that's, how, that's how I could do it. So if I wanted to bring cookies to someone, I would have to bring it to everybody. Yeah. And which means financially, that's not feasible for you mm -hmm. and for me and for most of the people watching. 
Um, so the way we can be the most influential is by being, being polite and reasonable, but being a, a resource and to partner with our legislators. When they see us coming, they trust us. Yes. They know we're going to bring good information and they open that door and they say, come on in, even without an appointment. There, there are some, you can build that relationship where there's an open door policy. They trust you. Yes. They, um, they know that you're, you're not, you're not there for any nefarious reasons and they welcome you um Mm -hmm. that's that's the ultimate goal and if you can't do that physically in person um but you can be at home and you can be watching these committee hearings at home and following bills on your computer you can get to a place with a um a legislator where you can text them and say hey i heard this bill's coming up in committee tomorrow and i'd like to talk to you about it and i'd like to you know give you share my thoughts and, mm-hmm. and you can get phone calls or meet them in their district. Um, mm-hmm. So you don't have to go to Nashville to be effective. I do think being there it, um, makes them shift a little in their seats. Um, <laughs> testifying also um, mm-hmm. should have people testifying on every bill, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's, um, you know, in opposition to or in support of, yeah. they need yeah. to hear from us. Absolutely. Yeah. I testified testified against a bill this week, and I was tickled pink when the the it was defeated. They awesome. they did not. It had already passed in the Senate and sub health, but full health. Um, you know, they there were a couple of legislators who spoke up who agreed with me before I was called up, and I I quoted the CDC, which said that. Yeah, the, the the law that exists, it was to um, drop the age on an existing law of making an offer of uh, flu vaccine in a hospital setting. The law should not exist. It's ridiculous. It, it's unsafe. I won't go into the details of it here, um, but it, it really felt good as a citizen to get up there to give, you know, really good information and to have it be respected and have it actually make a difference. It was it was pretty well, amazing feeling. <laughs> I wish I could say that I was as successful as you. I also testified against a bill this past Wednesday, um, as did a couple others from our election integrity coalition. Um, we were not successful in defeating that bill in the subcommittee. Um, We only have one ally on that subcommittee Um, so far. Mm -hmm. We're working on it. Um, So, but I, I, I did still believe that our testimonies still made a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, I did get, they did ask some good questions and we're going to follow it up next week because we're not going away. Yes. Um, we're just going to continue moving forward and um, getting stronger and, you know, training up more people to go and do this and to have these conversations. You really are building relationships. You're not going to get it done the first year, generally. You know, I was really lucky last year when I came on board because we had like the ivermectin and natural immunity bill from the beginning. But I was with two seasoned veteran mama bears, right? They introduced me to legislators that they already had established a relationship that was one of mutual respect. And so I I kind of got the easy way in the door with the introduction uh, there. But it does take time to build those relationships for them to get to know you and to trust you. We don't always agree with the legislators and we that we work with and that we um, they don't always vote the way we would want them to. But 
we've got this um, respect of what each, where each is, and we work together. And that's what's really important. But that takes time. And it's not as scary, is it? I mean, when you first started doing this, when I first you know, went to Olympia out in Washington state. I mean, I was nervous walking the halls. Oh, there's a Senator. Oh, that right. And it takes a while for you to realize that they're just people. Some of them deserve your awe. Most of them don't, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, most of them are just, you know, they're like, you know, you know, somebody working at a bank or something, you know, I mean, you don't need to be rude to them, but they don't necessarily know any more than you. They're no wiser than you. And they're just people that are supposed to be representing you um, and you need to make your voices heard. But anyway, uh, there's just so much, so much work to do. So we've covered now some of the great work happening in DC to, to reveal the fraud and the wokeness. Thank you for explaining, you know, both sides have a different definition of that. So that's really good to know. Um, So what now would you like to, to focus on? Well, I, you mentioned, um, you know, that sometimes these legislators are not reading all the bills and we're at that part of the session where they're piling up. They've rolled some of these bills a couple of weeks and now they're piling up. So now they'll have um, maybe a hundred plus bills on the docket for that particular, you know, committee hearing that's only going to be an hour and a half long or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we still have more caption bills yet to be amended. So we we still have to keep our eyes wide open and paying attention. And the more sets of eyes, the better, because mm-hmm. you can't look at everything and I can't look at everything. And so the more people we have paying attention, it really does help even the people it's so helpful to have people at home plugged in on their computers. They can be at home in their pajamas and they can be so effective alerting yeah. us like of what's going on. Um, but there was a bill that was just recently amended. It was a caption bill um, and it came up in education um, administration and mm-hmm. the amendment makes the bill of course, and it's a 13 page right. amendment. So this is um, house bill 1214 goes mm-hmm. into the um, homeschool code and um, charter school code. And it's a very interesting bill. And I don't mean interesting in a good way. <laughs> I'm very suspicious of what's going on here. And I've spent some time looking through it and talking to some other people about it. And we're all very concerned about it. But it's um, essentially going to create a charter school homeschool, like a hybrid So it's a government-run homeschool program. But then at the same time, in the same bill, it creates a charter or government-run boarding school for at-risk children. Oh, I missed that part of it. Yeah. What's the bill number? Isn't that odd? Uh, HB 1214. So that's the House bill number. Senate Mm -hmm. Bill 1194. Okay. And so it's uh, it's very um, it's very interesting. Um, I I have a lot of questions. I won't necessarily go into everything, but um, what I will say is that there are a lot of homeschool families that are very concerned about this bill, and we have a um, like an information Zoom meeting that that we're going to host tomorrow with um, Representative Brian Ritchie. 
Um, okay. So we're going to get on a Zoom call. We've invited homeschool families to be a part of it. And um, we're going to talk about our concerns on this call. Um, yeah. There's also a rally planned for next week because this will go back into committee and be heard again um, Wednesday at 1.30 in the House um, Administrative Committee. Yeah. And, you know, if, if people don't mind, if our listeners don't mind us talking about these particulars, because some of this stuff might be happening in other states. Right. And I guess this is where you've spent more time diving into it because I went and looked at current law. And I was a homeschooling mom for quite a bit of my son's education. And all states have a certain degree of oversight, you know, that are required, like minimal. Actually, in Tennessee, you only need like a high school diploma um, or a GE. In Washington State, you're required to have the equivalent of a bachelor degree or so many um, college credits. Um, and if you don't, you have to have an accredited teacher overseeing, if I'm remembering it right out there. Um what I found looking at it was that there's already on the books. I mean, you can homeschool. You don't have to associate with any other school at all. You could just completely homeschool. If you choose to align with a church school as you homeschool, this is a hybrid. You know, you take some classes there. Then there are some certain rules that go with that With uh, if you're going to a church school. Um, and then there was one other type of of learning partnership that was a hybrid between homeschool and an actual like registered school somewhere. Yeah. And so, so when it, you, when you're at you homeschool oh, in Tennessee, you have to register under an umbrella school. You have, you don't have to, do you? I think you can um, for, voice. Yeah. It, but it does make it easier for like reporting attendance and grading and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So exactly. And it was just my understanding. They were simply adding, following the same template, adding charter schools um, to, but again, I'm looking at it with somebody who doesn't understand how it might be misused. So that is something what we were talking about, you know, making a judgment before you really know uh, full facts. I'll tell you that the the homeschool families, those homeschool mamas in Tennessee, mm -hmm. they are looking at this very, very carefully. Um, it's I, I think if you were to look at this and say, OK, what is the benign explanation of why this bill would be proposed? And it could be that the state is seeing a lot of families pull children out of government schools. And so maybe this is to kind of create a catch all like, OK, we can provide a homeschool experience yeah. as a, under a charter um, mm -hmm. and provide all of your curriculum and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And so that that could be part of it. But there's just there's a lot of questions. And the fact that this boarding school is attached into this, it's a year round boarding school for at risk children. Um, it's. Uh, it's concerning on a lot of fronts. I mean, they consider at risk, they consider migrant children to be at risk, but there's no legal definition for migrant that we have found. Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes you wonder, are these going to be unaccompanied minors coming across the right. border, then put into a boarding school that's run by the government? There's just a lot of questions that are that are currently unanswered. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I so thank you for exploring that and looking at it closely and you know, seeing what needs to be done because, um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times there are bills that have good elements. And if, and if the language was used 
only as options and something to truly support something in a good way and not abused. And we are so concerned now because we know where this nation is heading. We know what people are trying to force people to do. Um, so, but I can also see on the other hand is we live in a nation of, of children who've been harmed by the environment, who have special needs, who are at risk. We live in a society where parents, some of them are at the end of their rope. They're like, I need help. I seriously need help. I can't do this alone. Um, and so having potentially this other choice, I, 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 Knowing what you know about the history of like the state taking over the rearing of children, I don't see it going well because, you, you know, especially if you have an at-risk child, an at-risk child is, they need so much love and support. And if the people overseeing them don't have that emotional connection to give them that love and support as they're struggling, it can get very scary. So um, it, these well, are difficult. Hmm? Any child that's been um, a victim of any kind of abuse. So if yeah. they're going through foster system, if they've been removed from the home for DCS, that all falls under at risk. Those child, those children are now uh, more vulnerable to being victimized again. Yes. And I'm, yes. I'm really concerned about, about, children being put into a government run boarding school, mm -hmm. they're at risk. Maybe their families are poor or maybe they are without parents or they're coming through the foster system. I'm, I'm really concerned that the, the government is not necessarily that loving environment that, that no. they need the, the nurturing that they need. No. This, this is an area I think where we as a community need to step up through, you know, through community-based organizations, uh, some of the faith um, organizations stepping up. Um, you know, in Tennessee, we've got the wonderful like Isaiah houses and there's some other things. They're breaking ground here in Hawkins County with one. This is just a place to stay when you're, when a child's taken from a home as they enter into foster care, it gives them a loving, safe environment to move to in that transition period. But, you know, we, if we don't want our government to step in and do things because we know they can't do them well. We as a community, if there's a need, we have to step up and do it, right? Mm -hmm. We can't just let these kids at risk languish. Neither do we want yeah. to put them in charge of the state who have a horrible history of not doing well, um, you know, in being able to adequately take care of children. So big issues. And when the legislators hear you, people like you and I come into their office and really wrangle with the realities of this at the ground level with with the how, what it really means in real life if this bill passes and what uh, alternative solutions there are. It really moves them and it can really improve legislation or may put a pause on legislation that isn't ready to go forward yet. Or... It puts it puts them in the hot seat and forces them to. You now know the information. You're going to decide which way you're going to vote, and the people will know. Yes. So it informs us on who we're keeping and who we might be replacing in a future election. Mm -hmm. And and they they need to realize that too. That yeah. you know we are now we're watching. 
Mm-hmm. We're watching, and when when you're on the wrong side of of um, you know protecting kids and protecting life and mm-hmm. protecting liberties, when you vote on the wrong side of that, there are consequences to that. There are consequences for people in Tennessee. Every everybody, every state legislator, like I cannot say that word this evening. Let, what government website? <laughs> I can say I guess a legislature website is different. I want to um, show folks. Let me see if I'm doing this right. Share this here. One thing that really needs to be fixed. It's difficult. So I'm showing the bill you were talking about, HB 1214, and you said the amendment makes the bill. But look at this. You click on amendments. Oh wait, it's actually there now. But it might not be up to date. A lot of times you cannot find the amendment. It's not there. There's another place you can go look, but you have to register now to go find it. And so we've got a lot of problems. I don't know if this is the current one, but it did, does turn out that, yes, here it is. I don't know how to get away from this. So um, the, the one that ahead. I'm looking at, it has a number. It is, um, I think it's 4560. Let's, let's see what this one is. This is amendment. They put that at the bottom. 4560. Okay, that's it. And I think there might be another amendment coming on this bill. Yeah. And then, so there's another place. So if you're in Tennessee, you know, eventually we need to have some classes, do some and record them for people to go see. It's really difficult as a citizen to be involved in Tennessee. Tennessee is a wonderful free state, but for citizen, citizens to figure out how to get actively involved and have their voices be heard, it is really difficult. Um, there's, there's now a tab places that you can find on the website that says house dashboard and you have to sign up and log in every time, but then you get more up-to-date information on the bills and you can see that stuff quite a bit earlier if you log in there. It's not always easy to figure out how to be engaged, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So it looks like we've probably only got about three more minutes here. So I'm going to let you tell people again uh, where they can find you and where they can find your website so they can take action. Okay. So um, our website, we do have two, but if you go to americarenewing.com, that's the easier one to remember, americarenewing.com. That's the Center for Renewing America website. And then the action tab takes you to the citizens website, but they're very similar. Um, We do have a lot of um, uh, literature on there, some um, primers, some model legislation. There's some really good resources there um, to get up to speed, to pick your lane, pick your subject and really learn and read and absorb it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my email is Andrea at, citizensrenewingamerica.com. I am on Twitter at Andrea Go. That's A-U-N-D-R-E-A-G-O. And I do share and um, a lot of information from Citizens and Center for Renewing America there. Um, And then in Tennessee, if you email me and you're interested in either the Election Integrity Coalition or the Education Coalition, I can send you information on how to register for that and and get those Zoom links out to you. Um, Those are going to be really important uh, moving forward. We're just going to grow this grassroots army and equip them and build them up um, Mm -hmm. so that they know how to get involved in this. I do go to the Capitol and I invite activists to join me. 
So I'm there at least every Wednesday, nice. sometimes Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, so if you have an America first priority that you're working on, one of our issues, um, so education, election integrity, medical freedom, all of those kinds of issues, um, I'm happy to join you and to walk the halls with you um, and to be your advocate um, while you advocate for what you believe in. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's pretty much what we do. I'm, I'm also available. I do travel around the state. I like to tell people I have a Honda and I'm not afraid to use it. Wisconsin <laughs> City, Tennessee. So, you know, I'm yeah. not lying about that. Yeah. Um, so the other part of my role is to to go and visit with groups and speak to groups. And I can speak on different issues, election integrity, education issues, woke and weaponized government. Um, but I'd love to come and introduce our organization to your group. Um, so if you if you want to reach out to me via email, um, if you're interested in that, I'd be happy to respond to that as well. That is fantastic. This is what it's going to take. And I'm I'm really enthused that more and more people are, are going to be joining us um, in capitals all over uh, this great uh, republic of ours. And that music means it's time to go, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing me in the hall. I'm going to know you <laughs> next time. Um, so you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW, and CHD TV. Uh, you got to stay tuned. We're going to be back. Uh, Pete Serrano uh, is coming with a, a lawsuit you want to hear about. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one-world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to Informed Choice Wa dot org today we need a
Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW and CHD TV. So glad you could be here today. And, you know, can you guys hear it? Can you feel it? We we are a little ways into this amazing revolution, this health revolution, this freedom revolution. It's peaceful, but it's passionate. And, you know, it took us a while. You know, it built, we had this, this long buildup. You've all heard probably everybody use the analogy of the slow boiling of the frog, right? We've been slowly boiling and not as the heat's been turned up, not knowing that our all of our freedoms were being impinged upon and taken away in many aspects of our lives. And then when COVID hit, it was like they turned the burner up to high boil and people began to feel it and jump out of the pot, right? And it took us a little while um, to figure out how to really be real engaged Americans. It took us, a lot of us, a long time to realize we've got this great foundational structure you know, everything going wrong in America de- today is because the people in charge, the people at the top, we, the people as individuals, we weren't involved. Where were we? We were not on the job. We were complacent. We shrugged. You can't fight City Hall. We weren't involved in all. And no wonder there was chaos when only the lobbyists and the corporations were talking to our elected leaders, were creating the framework of everything we engaged with. Well, no more. Our last guest, you just heard her from um, uh, Andrea Gomez from Citizens Renewing America. You know, they're working at every level to... uh, educate, advocate, to bring us back to the foundations of this nation. And it's going to take each and every one of us. And so my guest this hour, I am so excited to bring on Pete Serrano, one of my heroes. He is an attorney. He's laughing there. Of the Silent Majority Foundation. Welcome, Pete. Thanks, Bernadette. Um, You've got at least half of my bio right. I don't know whether or not I'm actually one of your heroes, but I certainly am an attorney with Silent Majority Foundation. And it's my pleasure, too. I'm really excited. I know we text, we email, we have all these various conversations with you and a group of us. And it's always fun to actually reconnect and and not just be about business, but be about business while, while having some fun here. Yeah, exactly. And no, you are one of my heroes because people who are stepping up now, knowing that the difficulty, the slings and arrows and everything, when you put yourself up out there, you know, um, you know that you're sacrificing something. You know, you are a very smart man. You could probably be a high powered lawyer at a firm working for these major companies and making huge salary, but you're not doing that. You set up a nonprofit, the Silent Majority Foundation, so you could take on the cases that you believe in, that you believe that this nation and the state of Washington in particular um, really need to have done. So, yes, sir, you, you, I got it, I got it right. <laughs> uh, you are my hero. You know, I, I talk a lot. I'm on the air. I go talk here and there. But you know what? I don't have a job to lose. I'm just a volunteer. I don't have a house to lose. I got my family that's fully supportive of me. I am in a very lucky place where I'm supported and I don't, but professionals of this nation, no, you guys going for it. So when I heard you reached out to us about a week ago and told us about this amazing lawsuit that you have put forward. So let's give 
Let's give the people a little background. Most of the people watching this show understand that medical doctors who have been healing patients with what works and speaking truth about pharmaceutical products, about the shots, about masks, they've had their very um, careers threatened and their license threatened um, by licensing boards across the United States. And now there's, well, I'm going to let you take it from here. Yeah. So just to kind of back up, uh, just for those who don't know me, Pete Serrano, Silent Majority Foundation, we're a nonprofit based out of Washington. We do uh, stand for a lot of what Bernadette led in with the intro, just the general constitutional nature of protecting our country and our children and bringing God back into the country is really fundamentally what we believe is necessary to save it. But I'm here today to talk about a case um, as well as provide an update. Unfortunately, it's not the update that I'd like to provide on it. Um, we brought a case on behalf of three doctors licensed in Washington, Dr. Richard Wilkinson out of Yakima, uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, who most of the listeners probably know that name out of Idaho, uh, but also licensed in Washington and other states, and Dr. Richard Eggleston out of southeastern uh, Washington, Asotan County. Uh, probably see it, some Washingtonians don't even know exactly where that is. <laughs> but yeah. um, so these three doctors have received what's called a statement of charges by the Washington Medical Commission. That is our licensing agency for medical professionals. That's PAs and MDs, uh, various surgeons as well. And these statements of charges are specifically related to COVID-19 misinformation, disinformation and treatment with ivermectin of various patients. The Medical Commission has alleged that these uh, prescriptions have actually done harm to these individuals. Of course, there's really no basis for that um, because obviously many of them survived and those who didn't survive were really old and really late into the COVID-19 treatment uh, profile, if you will. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking on day 8, 10, 12, 14. Um, <clears throat> so that's it is unfortunate when people do it do die, um, but it's it's not due to these prescriptions. So what we did is we took these three doctors, uh, Wilkinson, Cole, and Eggleston, and we sued the medical commission and the commissioners themselves for making a rule, a position statement that this, the commission disclaims as unenforceable. They're saying, oh, it's a position statement. Don't worry about it. We can't enforce it. We can only enforce it through the Uniform Disciplinary Act. Um, and now these doctors have charges through the Uniform Disciplinary Act against them. And again, the state's position is, oh, it's just a position statement, which is unenforceable. Well, when you have a standard of care that's separate from the standard of care that you've adopted through the position statement, it's really problematic. That, and it's clear that the medical commission's actually enforcing the position statement. And so through that, we brought this First Amendment free speech claim. We brought a claim that patients' rights were denied because how can you provide informed consent if you don't have the ability to talk to your doctor about certain treatments? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's it. We brought it for first on a motion for temporary restraining order, which was actually, we got a decision today. Oh, like I said, okay. it's not the news that we had hoped for. The judge simply said, they're not enforcing the position statement. So he, he used a lot of the rhetoric uh, from, from the state's uh, position, from its position statement as well. And so, so go ahead. 
Well, I'm just a little confused. So they have a position statement, the the licensing board against, say, ivermectin. They yep. say it's not enforceable. It, we, you know, but they did take action. But the, now they're denying they took action. No, they're not denying they took action. They're saying they t- did. They took action under a separate statute, which is the oh. Uniform Disciplinary Act. And they're saying so. Don't worry that. That misinformation is not a statutory word. It's not a word that regulatorily ever comes up, except in this position statement. But we're enforcing it only through the viable means of the Uniform Disciplinary Act. It's it's really a smoke and mirrors type argument. Oh. And it's unfortunate. And the judge said, well, listen, it only says in the position statement that they may take action. Well, again, you know, what we said is, Your Honor, the fact is they have taken action under the position statement that they've made it enforceable and that it should have gone through actual rulemaking and a comment process. They actually punted that process because that's a state claim and we were in federal court. And so we're now really trying to decide what is our best approach here? Do we continue with this judge or do we contemplate, you know, dismissing it and re-bringing it in Washington state court in Thurston County Mm-hmm. which is where we really didn't want to be just given the nature of the bench up there. Um, yeah. But if we have to, that's what we're going to do to protect these individuals licenses as well as their livelihoods. You know, Ryan mm-hmm. Cole, if you read the pleading, he is out millions of dollars of, of what mm-hmm. he would have made and could have made and what he did make prior to um, having to sell his business, unfortunately at a loss or, or wow. at least at a deep discount. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sad that we have a commission who's claiming no we we're not enforcing this we're enforcing our other professional regulations but again when you're telling me when you put in the statement of charges that that misinformation is part of the problem that word does not appear anywhere else in the statute or in any other uh agency rulemaking mm-hmm. so it's clear that they are enforcing this whether or not they, they have the ability to, or whether or not they're actually yeah. enforcing it directly or indirectly. Well, it, it I know that a lot of times there's, it's a little bit bumpy when you begin doing this. It's a lot like filing bills and it comes back and, and legal has shown you a hiccup you didn't know was there. Or you get outside people saying, you know, everybody's, it's a game, right? And it's they're going to play it this way. And it seems like you almost have to keep dancing around until you figure out the way forward. So, you know, we're going to think of this as just part of the journey, right? Um, to figure out how they're going to argue this and what they're going to do. I, I don't, I would love to find a way you are going to win this. We're going to just think positive, send you energy. People send him money. We'll give you the link in a bit. You need to fund this guy. We cannot let these licensing boards take away the license of doctors' ability to doctor. Or why do we have doctors at all? Why not just step up to a kiosk that scans your body and spits out a bottle of pills or that you know, maybe just shoots the injection right in you know, where you stand, right? Why bother even having the human between the pill and the problem? <laughs> because it seems like that's not what they want. They they just want, they want walking, talking, dispensing machines that yeah. only dispense what they want. And, and, and that, I, I appreciate that because, and I appreciate, you know, informed life, informed choice, right? That's what it's all about is this mm-hmm. process whereby, a conversation like this occurs, an exchange of ideas between a medical professional 
and a treated person, a patient. And if that exchange can't occur, or if it's got guardrails of don't say buzzwords A, B, and C, or don't prescribe A, B, and C, or even don't even, you know, again, whether it's buzzwords or prescription, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the patient loses out. And that was a big part of our pleading was that, listen, mm-hmm. you didn't just curb the doctor's ability to speak. You curb the patient's ability to receive. Now, the interesting thing is we were able to mirror a lot of work that was done in central California where there was a decision um, that was a decision that was made on from a district court judge. So equivalent, it's the, the trial court in the federal level who actually enjoined or stopped the enforcement of California's AB 2098, Assembly Bill 2098, which was their misinformation, disinformation piece. And in in looking at that, we were able to utilize a lot of those arguments. And so it's interesting that we have a district court judge here who's now saying, oh, it's not an enforceable rule, even though it's being enforced, but it's not being enforced. Something else is being enforced. <laughs> so, you know, the question is, do we pursue this just to get it on appeal? Uh, again, do we try to bring it in state court to get different relief? Uh, so mm-hmm. right now, since I'm fresh off of reading the opinion, uh, came in earlier today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I wish I had better news. I, I really felt like there was a strong argument that was well rationalized as to why it should be enjoined, as to why it should be restrained. Um, you know, again, the judge has his ability to disagree, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. So the question for us now is whether we pursue it through the injunctive relief and then look at appealing and then try and I don't know that we'll be able to consolidate with that California case, but certainly going both to the Ninth Circuit, meeting in that same place and having Mm -hmm. two cases where a court said yes and a court says no, Mm -hmm. I think it makes it very attractive for the Ninth Circuit to really get the analysis right, if you will. Um, So I think it, it leads to a lot of really good opportunity to expedite this again, either through the circuit or even up to the United States Supreme Court. Because this is something worth challenging that far. You know, obviously, you mentioned the need for funding. Obviously, if we go there, that would be very helpful is to be funded mm-hmm. to that level. And then to the extent that other, other law firms or other like-minded organizations want to join and help us, you know, that would be wonderful, too. Because this has to, to your point, this has to go to the top. This has to go to the Supreme yeah. Court. The doctor-patient relationship cannot be disintegrated because buzzwords or offensive terms are used. I mean, obviously ivermectin is not an offensive term, but you know, because, because the commission doesn't like the treatment methodology. Well, and it's, it, we know it's so much bigger than that. They didn't make this decision independently. They were told by that. What is it? The national federation of medical boards, some, some independent board that pushed out to, um, all of the, like the, the nurse um, medical boards, the doctor medical boards, and told them, led them in this direction. They know where the money is and what they need to do. It is systemic to try to shut down. And this is, you know, the, the doctors who speak up and do the right thing, they're getting all the flack. They're getting all the blame and taking all the hits. But it's not about them. It's not about ivermectin. It's about the medical industry and pharmaceutical industry dominance over every aspect of our healthcare. Now, I want to share with you 
um, something I discovered a year or so ago. Well, not like I discovered Wikipedia, but um, looking at me, see if I can make this bigger for you. Um, if I can make it bigger. Um, anyway, so when you go to Wikipedia, which we know there's there's people who are like paid by pharma to go in here and change definitions. Naturopathy has been around for a very long time. It's it, all over the world. You get degrees in it. You know, there's a naturopathic University Bastyr in um, Bothell, Washington. But let's have to listen to how Wikipedia describes it. Naturopathy or naturopathic medicine is a form of alternative medicine, a wide array of pseudo-scientific practices branded as quote-unquote natural, non-invasive, or promoting quote self-healing are employed by nat um, it, practitioners who are known as ma uh, naturopaths. I mean, it just goes on to absolutely disparage naturopathy, right. natural healing, and the fact that your immune system can actually heal itself if properly supported. They, the, the, I say they, they is that medical pharmaceutical complex. You know, one of the number one things that we can do to heal costs us absolutely nothing. Well, there's, well, actually it's quite a few of those and that's intermittent fasting. If people change nothing else, but simply have a window of time, 14 to 16 hours, you know, in a 24 hour period where they don't eat, their body goes into that autophagy. It begins to heal, you know, uh, fix things up, clean things out. It's just amazing the healing you can get and it costs nothing. Pharma doesn't like that. They're not going to be promoting intermittent fasting. You know, what's really fascinating, um, Pete, is... Um, I learned years ago when I had a friend going through cancer that when they are testing a new cancer drug, do you know what they compare it to? The gold standard of cancer cell death effectiveness is fasting. So wow. when they have a new chemo drug or radiation, they will compare it to fasting for cancer cell death. They don't tell they don't tell the patient you might want to fast. No, usually when you're getting chemotherapy, they're feeding you cookies and juice. They're giving you sugar, which actually feeds the cancer, which defeats the purpose. So, you know, this is big business. And, you know, the more that government mandates medical interventions and the less that doctors and nurses are able to use their good judgment to guide you and inform you of your medical choices and then respect your medical choice, you know, the less money pharma makes. So right. they have really got a, a massive hold, especially in developed nations. You know, some of the third world nations, some of the poor nations fared COVID way better than we did. Why? Because they didn't have access to hospitals. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, they had to go back to work, you know, and they're outside and they're living and breathing. And, you know, a lot of these countries had ivermectin. It was on the shelf next to aspirin that they could buy without a prescription. Um, yeah, so this war that you're in, this, this fight to protect these three doctors, it's symbolic of what's going on and, and it needs, it needs to win. So everybody, you got to go to silentmajorityfoundation.org, silentmajorityfoundation.org. You've been, uh, you'll be posting about this case, right? Um, yeah. updating people. I, I know we have on our social media, um, and, so through 
I believe on our Twitter, certainly on our Instagram, uh, Facebook, we've been pretty well shadow banned. Um, yeah. but primarily right now we're using Instagram and Twitter that it's, it's up there on the Instagram stuff. Uh, we have a sub stack, I believe with the pleadings, uh, eventually we will, we will get it next on the website to get the pleadings up there. So that in our goal is to put all the pleadings up there so that people can read what we've put out there. For example, two of the declarations, uh, doctors, uh, Wilkinson and Eggleston, I think there's several hundred pages each because we referenced, you know, 12 to 14 studies that each used, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People could read through those studies if they're so inclined, if they've not already. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we try to bring our pleadings not only for success, but also for success in the court of public opinion so that when, you know, John and Jane Doe are reading through it, they say, oh my goodness, I'm learning from this, not just about the law, but or what happened to doctors Cole Wilkinson and Eggleston, but learning about a little bit of exposure of the government. We, we talk mm-hmm. about that. We talk about how the COVID-19 misinformation position statement was adopted without public comment. They, they expressly stated this. This was done remotely. It was done on a Zoom meeting. And the opening line is, under the Washington uh, Open Public Meetings Act, this is a public meeting. However, because it's a special meeting, we are not allowing for public comment because of the nature of this. And then the first thing they do is they go to a split screen, just like you and I, where it's got a picture of the final statement and the statement that's in red line next to it. And one of the doctors who was not present, they said, doctor, I can't remember his name right now, uh, this doctor, offered these edits to address standard of care because this needs to be adopted as a standard of care. And we put all that into our pleading. And and so again, when when the court kind of dismisses that notion that this this is what the WMC, the Washington Medical Commission, is enforcing, it's like, I I understand words of the statement say that it may be enforced, but through the Uniform Disciplinary Act, But when you tell me, like when I provide part of the transcript saying this is a standard of care, Mm -hmm. um, it's like that whole notion was lost. And and so, again, looking at our future actions, continuing in this fight on the same road, even knowing that we might lose, there's there's really an attractiveness to that appellate level, especially knowing that California District Court came Mm -hmm. out on the different side of the coin and forcing the Ninth Circuit's hand and saying, listen, Here's a case where they actually passed the law. The judge said it was unconstitutional. Here's mm-hmm. a case where they didn't pass a law, but adopted a position statement, mm-hmm. which is non-binding, but now they're enforcing against it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so it's it's really going to be interesting to see where this goes. It's unfortunate that, you know, we didn't come out on top this morning, which is where, again, I thought we were well-pled. We had facts. We had declarations. We had the law behind us. Um and so be it. You know, we're going to keep fighting to your point. This fight is yeah. this is one of our many, many fights from yeah. Silent Majority Foundation, both on medical freedom and other constitutional issues, gun rights and sorts of yeah. things like that. There, there's been an awful lot of bypassing rulemaking and putting things into play as rules or that have the effect of rules illegally throughout COVID throughout in many states, especially in Washington. And then there was some rules that went through the process sort of 
but were completely illegal. There was the the Office of Financial Management just filed rules that were completely illegal. They claimed that they were when they filled out the form that checked what they were doing. So for people who kind of new to how our laws work, um, state legislatures pass laws. They pass bills that become laws. Now, different agencies in your state are authorized and empowered to write rules, but those rules are simply to put laws that were passed into um, practical usage. These rules help implement the law. Every rule must have a foundation, and then jump in if I'm explaining it wrong here, Pete, but is my understanding every rule must have a, found, a statutory foundation that authorizes them to make this rule. They cannot write rules outside of the law. But what they did with, with the Office of Financial Management in regards to making the COVID-19 vaccines permanent for all Washington state employees, um, they claimed a, that they were implementing portions of a law that said no such thing. It was a long existing law. It did not say they could mandate any medical intervention. So that was completely false. And they also said they were implementing the governor's order. Well, you cannot write rules to implement a governor's order. And yet. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've got that right. Uh, and an agency is authorized to do what the agency is authorized to do. And I know that's a very repetitive statement, but by through the legislature enacting a code, at least in Washington, revised code of Washington, that will give you the prescription, if you will, of and the marching orders of the agency. Now, the agency gets to adopt rules. That's where we see the Washington annotated code. But those rules have to fall within that first code. And anything outside yes. of that exceeds the agency's authority. And yeah. there's it's very clear. The law on that is extremely clear that if it falls outside of the ambit, that's an illegal rule. And it's sub all rules are subject to challenge, but those rules are really subject to like successful challenge, theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so that OFM, Office of Financial Management rule, it was problematic for several reasons. As you said, you know, it permanently adopts a COVID-19 vaccine mandate, which, you know, is, is just outside of OFM's rulemaking. Their job is to be the purse strings and kind of an auditing agency for the Washington state employment agencies. And so they don't have this authority. And so you and I and a couple other folks, uh, our friends from Pacific Justice Institute and Lockerbie Law worked on a challenge to that. And it successfully got it to the point where now it's incentivized, right? Taking additional COVID-19 shots were not mandatory, but they're incentivized. Now people listening are gonna say, well, I already got fired. And that's where we're having some serious difficulties is that people who ended up getting terminated now we're in the position of, my goodness, now not only do we have to fight against the governor's orders, but now we have to fight for them to get back onto the floor, if you will. Yeah. And, and it's frustrating that, that we're having to take so many fights against the government who's funded by our tax dollars. Yeah. And, you know, it's you say that it, at least it's incentivized uh, instead of being ordered, which I guess is a slight step in the right direction. I, I, but, you know, actually, I don't even believe that. I'm sorry. I have to disagree with you here because it's so unethical to pay somebody to get a medical intervention they don't want, really, 
that puts their life at risk. This is so unethical and it should not be allowed. And it's taxpayer dollars paying somebody a thousand dollars to risk heart attack, stroke, myocarditis, reproduction and neurological. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you know, and now if this person was given fully informed consent about the product they're about to get, I'm all about freedom, but they're not, they're not yeah. being told the full truth. If they don't know to go watch, you know, the high wire and go to children's health defense and go to all of the places, act, you know, just go watch the, the, um, the FDA, uh, Verbeck meetings and the CDC, um, ACIP meetings and then go read the actual filings and now go read what's coming forward from FOIA, all this stuff in the clinical trials that they tried to hide. Um, you know, go read the actual documentation and then you will see. But anyway, nobody is being told the truth. And so there is no informed consent. And so bribing somebody is so highly unethical. I want to um, kind of jump back to our first um, topic of your lawsuit here in the basis of um let me see here. Are you seeing that in Form Trace uh, Washington? I, I see the news page. Okay. Um, yeah. I, let me on. go over there and I'll scroll up on it a little bit here. I wanted to show you, this is from November, 2022. In one of our nuclear, uh, weekly news updates at Informed Choice Washington, we talked about a lot of the stuff that led up to what, you know, your court case going on here, your lawsuit um, about the silencing washing, Washington doctors and nurses. So this gives you some of that history we were talking about. Um, so, here we have the Washington State Department of Health Nursing Care Quality Assurance Commission. And they are, they support the Federation of State Medical Boards statement. This is an interesting organization to go yeah, explore. They influence globally. And it's all about misinformation and disinformation. And it says that they're expanding the statement to include nurses in Washington state and does not limit this perspective to the vaccines, but broadly applies the standard to all misinformation regarding COVID-19 treatments and preventive measures such as masking. Nurses who generate and spread COVID-19 misinformation or disinformation erode the public trust in the nursing profession and endangers uh, patients. Anyway, so they issued that for the from the nursing association. Yep. And then here's the one from the Washington Medical Commission. And again, this is going back to the Federation of State Medical yep. Boards. Well, who are these idiots that are that are saying these things who are not following the science, but are very much following the profits of the pharmaceutical industry making remdesivir and Paxlovid and the shots, right? So then we have this other complaint to them. Let me see if there was another one. Um, I think that was the main point. So we've got all those links there. If anybody wants to go explore, I think if you search for the word federation on our website, you will find it. Yeah, and if you scroll back, oh, well, you, uh, oh, sharing. You, no, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but that COVID physician statement is the one that we challenged. Yeah. Uh, is, and so it's, it's really interesting that you know, there are several points to be made. One, they, what they, the Washington Medical Commission or the NQAC with the Nursing Quality Assurance Commission did was simply just punt. They said, oh, the FSMB, Federation of State Medical Boards, already adopted this. So this has to be good. Well, the Federation of State Medical Boards is a multi, multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I believe they're based out of Texas. And it's exactly what you expect it to be. A bunch of doctors who sit on a board and say, uh, I represent 
I'm a representative from one of the 50 states. I, we have, I think, three from Washington, and we're going to try to create some guidelines. Okay, that's a very important word, guidelines for how the practice medicine medicine should occur. We are going to issue testing regulations and then other, from this point, COVID-19 misinformation statements, and other states can adopt it or not. And so it's unfortunate that the state just brought the FSMB in. I, I really, really contemplated bringing them in as a separate party. Um, but I knew that would get so messy, especially with them being out of state. Um, yeah. But I, that's really, to your point, Bernadette, that's where we have to go. Is It can't just be state by state by state. The Federation of State Medical Boards does need to go down. It does need to have some shots taken at it. And it le needs to lose its funding or or some type of value. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly how to get there. Uh, and I again, my concern here was if I brought that into the lawsuit, it's just going to delay, delay, delay. Well, now yeah. that the immediate relief that I asked hasn't been granted, maybe there's value in really processing whether or not the FSMB is a necessary party. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy that that's where this was generated mm -hmm. and they just, there was no independence. Oh, well, it's good enough for the FSMB. It's good enough for us. And we're going to go ahead and bring this. And when you read through that, I understand the word is maybe subject to license discipline, but it's very clear. Again, when you look at the statement of charges brought against these doctors, they were subject to discipline because of covid quote unquote misinformation or disinformation yeah. which again by statute does not exist so you have an agency creating a position statement which is a regulatory interpretation not even a binding rule and enforcing it and whether or not you know the judge this morning liked that that's that's not on me you know it's it's it really becomes an issue where it's like well maybe this really is subject to appeal or again, maybe we bring it to the state court and address some of those other yeah. state issues. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really tricky to figure out because you not only have to deal with the law, but you're dealing maybe with tendencies, personalities, you know, uh, it's a very human thing working with the court system. We would love to think they were all Spock and they could all be very neutral and just make logical decisions. But, you know, I guess the problem right now is nobody's making logical decisions and nobody's making independent critical decisions. So one of, one of my goals I'd like to see while I'm still on planet earth is the installation within our, healthcare system of checks and balances. I, right now it's run like an army, CHD or the Federation of, you know, medical boards, high powered entities push things out, everybody all the way down in this massive infrastructure of rules and regulations and pharma and, and everything, standard of care. The term standard of care is so horrible to me. I've seen people die from standard of care. They were, they were denied real treatment because the doctors were too scared to not do standard of care. This is just unacceptable. But anyway, um, my goal is to see integrated a very robust system of checks and balances so that if the CDC sends something out, you've got somebody at every state going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're putting it through the stink test here. We're going to go look into it. We're going to, we're going to 
we're going to research every which way this is, and we're going to examine this very closely. And then the states do that, and they push it down to the county. And the county's got their own little committee, says, oh, wait a minute. I, let me examine this, you know, all the way down. And then, you know, the ultimate powers in the individual to decide whether or not you still believe in it. Right. But there's no checks and balances now. And in fact, if you try to stand up and criticize within the system, you get court martialed. You can't speak up against the system. And this is so abhorrent to human health. Well, and that's that's medicine. That's the interesting point. The local control is very, very, very critical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was early, early on in the litigation we brought against Jay Inslee, our governor's uh, vaccine mandates and his other rules related to the pandemic proclamations was simply that this should have been a county decision. When you look mm-hmm. at the various statutes, the revised code of Washington, the law on the books is pretty clear that the county is the one that should decide it. Now, the legislature granted Jay Inslee, and again, I disagree with this, but this is the court's interpretation, a very broad swath of how and when to end and begin a, uh, an emergency declaration. In fact, we're actually appealing a ruling on that, and, and it's due next week. Um, you know, this we we appealed these uh, declarations in March of 2022 because at that time COVID had dropped and there were several counties up to nine, I believe, in, in one of the proclamations and five in the other was zero, zero COVID cases. And the judge said, well, this is an airborne disease, so it's not like it knows where uh, Benton and Franklin County exist. Right. And it's like, well, you're kind of missing out here, Your Honor. <laughs> We've got to address whether or not that was the appropriate use of his authority. And again, back to your point, Bernadette, you have the county by county, which should have been the approach. Each mm-hmm. county said this is what, what we do. Um, well, unfortunately, we didn't see that. Right, right. Well, county by county approach, however, I mean, I keep backing up because, I mean, I mean if this had been a real... You know, it's a real virus made in a lab that escaped that does do some crazy damage to some people. But we now know we knew early on, you know, by late spring at the very latest of 2020, we knew how to treat it Um, and we knew who was most susceptible. So I guess. I completely lost my thought exact of, of where I was going, but oh, county by county, um, you know, all of these, none of this was necessary. Had there been checks and balances and everybody stepping back and saying, I mean, because remember those videos in this in February 2020 of those doctors in New York after a long shift and they're getting yeah. on YouTube and they're saying the vents don't work. This is not a vent disease. What we're seeing, we got to quit venting them. The vents are killing them. I mean, they were going on and they were saying what was working and they were finding solutions. And then very quickly, the FLCCC doctors came on. Um, They started off as being called something else. And then they, you know, they grew and grew. And so the truth was not allowed to rise up and become part of standard of care because, you know, they had all these other plans. And that's, you know, all of this is what needs to be defeated. And and I say that the best of mankind was co-opted. 
because people were told you have to sacrifice this to save your loved one. You have to sacrifice that. None of these sacrifices actually did a thing to save anybody. And we cannot, and now we know like the, the, the risk of COVID, meaning like the fatal risk of COVID, when you look at the population level, it's it's under 1%. We know for even the high risk age groups, it's 0.0 something is the true risk when now that we step back and look at all the data. Do we want to really live in a fearful society where everybody freaks out, masks up, locks down, sacrifices everything? No. I refuse to live that way. That is not, humans have never had to live that way. Maybe a tiny little window of time with something like the Black Plague or whatever, right? Um, yeah. And that's, we, you would think by 2023, we would know a little bit more about the immune system and viruses and treatments and such. But, you know, they want us in fear. They want us forever thinking that humans, natural immune systems, and the support that nature surprise, uh, supplies, which includes ivermectin. Because ivermectin, yes, it's a pharmaceutical, but it's a semi-natural pharmaceutical. It's a fermented soil bacteria. Um, and so it's probably why it works so well, because it is, um, you know, it, it's fairly close to nature in some regards. So, sorry, I'm just off on no, my tangent here. But <laughs> no, and it's, it's I'm 100% in agreement that, you know, the lockdowns were ridiculous. It, that was the antithesis of what should have been done. I still remember Jay Inslee finally letting people go out and run, right? Um, and and I was like, are you kidding? The best thing you can do, unless you're like deathbed sick and can't move, is to go exercise and allow your body to do what your body does, to heal itself, mm -hmm. to procure that vitamin D from the sun or whatever the case is. And it's, it's really unfortunate that the government, you know, whether it was a test of mankind's will or whether it was a test of how far they could push away from what the Constitution created as a structure for the government, I don't know exactly what it was, but those who were in power had the decision that they were going to push and push and push and push. Yeah. And until those of us who stood up did it, it was like, well, this is how far I got. I will say this. One of the reasons that I was so inclined to jump in when I did was I've had, I have three young kids, you know, they're now four, seven and nine. Mm -hmm. And what I, I didn't want to leave them the ruins, the rags of, of a structure called the constitution. I didn't want to leave them the ruins of the United States of America. And I don't, proclaim that I alone or even our organizations, yours, mine, all of the other ones and all the other individuals fighting can save it. But if we don't try, then I have nothing to live for, right? I have nothing right. to give because I'm going to expire from this earth at some point. And I can either have fought to preserve that liberty, to preserve those freedoms and to put my kids in a place where they've got a future or not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's been... It's been just, I mean, I've got words coming to my mind that I know I can't say on air, but <laughs> it's been a total mess. And it is unfortunate that those who have had the power have done nothing more than get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. I still remember one of our very first cases, you know, the state was citing this case. Everyone's heard of it. Jacobson 
I think it's Jacobson versus Massachusetts from like 1905 and decided in in the early 20s, I believe. 1905. Yep. And that case was all about, first, the individual had a choice to pay a penalty. Yes. Right? It wasn't you lose your job. It wasn't you have to go to jail. You could go to jail. You could go to get a shot, go to jail or pay a penalty. Yes, exactly. We all, not that I would have been okay with it, but I think we all, and, and when you equate it out, it was like $572 in today's value, if I recall. Oh, it was, uh, wow, because it was only $5 in 1905. Yeah, so it's $5 up to 500 now? <laughs> I think with the inflation, I did the numbers and don't, don't quote me. I'm not a mathematician, okay. but <laughs> let's assume it was $50 or even $500. I think most of us would have said, fine, I'll pay $500 and give me the paper. But at the end of the day, I shouldn't have to pay $500 for a paper that allows me to live my life as a normal person, especially when, to yeah. your point, you know, you look at medical advancements. Are, mm-hmm. Is the state claiming that in 2023, we've got the same medical technology as 1905? Of course not, because then they're going to regulate that, right? So right, right. it was just this antithetical argument that basically would say, well, you know, this is how it was in 1905. To your point, it was a much more dangerous disease back then. It was smallpox. Yep. And they didn't know much about the immune system. But, you know, I love to go read uh, Jacob's Jacobson, because when you read it, it, I'd love to read like the science portion of it, because the judges on the Supreme Court actually said things like, you know, we don't know um, who's right about the science because the the individual, it was like a preacher and his son who had come from England. They had both been vaccinated for smallpox before because, folks, the shot didn't work, right? And so they were always revaccinating people. And both of them had had severe adverse reactions to the shots in the past, and they didn't want to get it again. And so the judges had heard science on both sides, and they said, we don't know if this product basically is safe or effective or not, but it's we're judges, and it's not our place to weigh in on who's right about the science. We have to basically go with, and this is where (laughs) Jacob set us up. We have to go with the consensus, right? I'm like, oh no, consent. That's where consensus started with all that, right? With Jacobson, we got to go with the census. We're not going to decide. But they acknowledged that people were hurt by the vaccine and that it didn't always work. And they, and it was only when there was like a, outbreak right where an individual was, and then they could just pay the penalty, right? As you were saying, it was not how it's being used and abused today to say that we have the right to tell you to do this or, you know, they don't. That's not what Jacobson was all about. And, you know, what we have to figure out is this consensus science has been captured by big medicine and big pharma. And, you know, I've told listeners ad nauseum the story about my pop and getting kicked out of the hospital because we wouldn't do standard of care. Um, but so many people have their own stories of being told, um, you know, yeah, well, that's interesting. I think that might be worth a try, but that's not standard of care. So, you know, you, I, I can't do that for you. You know, this has got to end. And the, the silver lining of the horrors of COVID are that people are awake and we're going to make change. And I believe we're going to get through this as a stronger republic than ever. Because, you know, you go over to Europe and the millions of people have been protesting in some countries, in Germany and Paris and places where they have seen tyranny. 
America never really saw tyranny until recently. So it's new to us. We don't have that cultural memory of having to stand up en masse against this sort of thing. But we're learning. We're a young nation compared to others. And we're learning. And I believe we're going to come through as a more uh, a stronger republic um, than ever before. But I'm a hopeless optimist. and um, But I believe we can do it. You know, the numbers are growing, Pete. They, they are. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I always try to, to leave people with is, you know, on interviews, whatever, or videos that I shoot. Look, I'm not the only one out there. You're not the only one. We may be, you know, what feels like a smaller group, but I, I certainly, I absolutely believe we've named ourselves silent majority because I do believe we are in the majority. Mm-hmm. And my goal, I've always joked about this, is I want to change our name quickly to just the Majority Foundation, right? Like, <laughs> no longer silent, you know? Yeah. And we all need to be out there playing our hands, playing our cards, and making decisions that force those who have made decisions for us either to feel uncomfortable or to give them some other thing to think about, some other information. And, and that's, I, I love that there are many, to your point, there are many of us, there are many fighters, and we're mm-hmm. looking to change the world back to what it was when I was, you know, six years old in the mid, mid-1980s growing up and going over to 7-Eleven, right? Like when life was simpler, not just because I was a kid, but because to a great degree, the government, maybe, maybe I missed it, maybe not, didn't have that same level of overreach. No, and that level of overreach is is really very concerning and what we need to to stop. So I, I've got up on the screen here, I've got the Silent Majority Foundation. It's silentmajorityfoundation.org. You know, you can become a member of this organization and you can help Pete with the um He's just at the beginning stages. He's not given up uh, saving the licenses of these three doctors. And, you know, we need to support him and his good work because this is not just about those three doctors who really um, sacrifice their careers to save patients, to educate the masses about what's going on. This this is about all of humanity and where we want to be with healthcare. So if you can, I know you, everybody gets asked a lot. We're always asking you to kind of help support us, but you know, we're going to win a lot of this in the courts. And so um, if just go just a little bit, cup of coffee, as they say, uh, you know, a month or whatever you can do, join the um, silent uh, majority foundation, become a member and help support this. We got this people. We, you know, we can no longer be complacent. We can no longer be silent. And Pete, I like the idea of of changing your name, but I but what I would I don't want to lose silent majority because what I would love is it like you said, no longer silent majority because it shows it's it shows where we came from and we're not going to take it anymore. You know, yeah, <laughs> no we, we have to remember our roots absolutely. Yes. And I appreciate that. I mean, I joke about changing the name, but it's more of the mantra of getting people to realize their voice matters. Yes. And we're here to help them carry it. We're here to help educate them, advocate for them. And if we Mm -hmm. have to litigate. So I really appreciate it. It's it's always great to chat. It's always great to catch up. 
Oh, it is. It's so great. We need to support the attorneys that support us, the doctors that support us, the businesses that support us, the, the pharmacies that support us. There, even in Washington state, there's some independent compounding pharmacies who will fill ivermectin prescriptions, right? Um, we need to put our money where our mouth is. I think we've got one more minute here. So if we all envision that all this stuff happening to us is really a giant monster that feeds on money. Well, where do they get the money? It's our purchases. And I'm, I'm guilty as anybody else in the fact that I haven't completely extracted my spending dollars in my daily life from, from everything that is feeding into what I don't believe in. But I'm trying to take steps in that direction. And that's what we can all do right? We quit feeding that monster and standing up and, and we begin to stand up and say, no, we can do this. So Pete Serrano, uh, Silent Majority Foundation, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Bernadette. Yeah. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW and CHD TV. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PJI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PJI. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.